Today is our last lesson on the whole church state stuff, unless this goes a lot longer than I think it will, but I don't think it will. We've been talking about formal theology, the, the theology, the teaching about the role of the secular authority and the role of the spiritual authority. Today we're going to get into the brass tacks of whether Christians in the church can um, engage in the political order, and if so, how? So those are going to be the two big questions. First of all, can the church legitimately engage in all the nice politics stuff? And the very fact that we're bothering to ask a second question kind of gives you the idea of what the answer is going to be. How can it do that? First of all, we'll start off, I want to start with a myth I'm sure you've all heard. The saying, you cannot legislate morality. You've all heard that, I'm sure, right? I say it's a myth because if you think about it, every single law tries to prevent you to do, from doing something, right? Or encourage you to do something. What else is that except legislating your behavior? <laughs> and if it's legislating your behavior, it's an attempt to get you to act a certain way. If by morality you mean the way you think is a good way to behave, that is legislating morality. Now, if you mean by morality only what goes on inside your head about what you think is good or bad, then no, obviously you can't legislate that. But all legislation is about trying to get people, individuals, organizations to act some ways and not others, or at least the vast majority of it is. So it's all about legislating morality. So if that's an objection one has to saying the church shouldn't get involved in the politics of the state, they have a very false idea of what it is the state does in the first place. Because <laughs> that's the whole point of the state. You can't enforce the second table of the law. If you can't legislate morality, right? But anyway, let's uh, start with a very big question. Since we're, our question is, how does or can the church engage in politics? A uh, big question right off the bat that comes off of that is, what do we even mean when we say the word church? Because obviously we use the word church in a lot of different ways. You say you're going to church on Sunday, right? And normally what you mean is you're coming to this place to worship. Obviously, the building isn't going to get too political, is it? So we don't mean that. There's three big ways we use the way church, aside from the place we're gathering. One is, theologically speaking, for the whole people of God in every time and every place. It'd be very hard to get literally every Christian engaged in politics in, as a unit, right? So we don't really mean that. When we're talking about church, it's probably one of the other two senses we want to focus on. Either any particular Christian individual or group of Christian individuals. That's one way we talk about church, right? When I say, oh, you guys are the church. I mean, you specific Christians right here, right now, right? As individuals, that's a valid thing to ask. Can you guys individually as Christians, members of the church, get involved in politics? Not just as citizens, but as members of the church. Or we could talk about formal groups or institutions. The congregation of St. John's, Louisville. It's an entity, right? In theory, you could see us starting a petition. So it's not that they can't, it's a question of whether it's advisable for that, or for that matter, a larger church body like the LCMS, the Roman Catholic Church, um, any of these broader denominations or synods. They're church bodies that exist in some kind of formal, almost legal sense of the word, right? So they could be people who might we might be talking about as 
possibly being able to get involved in politics. Well, anyway, that's what we're talking about. Those last two, individual Christians and broader church entities like church bodies or formal congregations. So let's start from the state side, uh, the United States government. Does the government think that the church in either of those two senses can be involved in politics? For that, let's just think about what the First Amendment says. A lot of times, of course, we hear separation of church and state, right? That's what the Constitution says. Therefore, Christians as Christians should leave their religious faith at the door when they get involved in politics, right? That's the thinking that you hear a lot of. But what the First Amendment says is that, uh, I quoted it in our sermon on Sunday, that Congress shall make no law um, establishing a religion. I might be misquoting slightly, but the gist is here. And secondarily, that it should pass no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So on the one hand, it says that the state, for its part, cannot formally sanction or prefer any particular religion or religious group. So it can't pass a law saying Roman Catholicism is now the official church religion of the country. For that matter, it can't say we're giving out grant monies only Lutherans and Methodists can get it, but Jews, Muslims, they can't get it because they're the wrong kinds of religions. Those kinds of things are forbidden. That's, a separate, that's the separation of church and state that it's talking about, that you can't have the government overtly um, sanction or sponsor any particular religious group or religion. But on the other hand, it also says right away that you cannot, that the Congress cannot um, prohibit the free exercise of religion. That doesn't mean only that it can't prohibit you from doing the bare minimum of your religious duties and going to church on Sunday. It also means it can't prohibit you from acting and living as though you are a religious adherent of this particular group. So it assumes, of course, that people in Congress are going to be religious, quite probably, and that they will also want to exercise their religion in more ways than simply showing up to church on Sunday and then acting like they're not a Christian the rest of the week or a Muslim or anything else. They'll assume that the person should have the right and the ability to pray freely, for instance, in various locations. They'll assume that you should, in fact, be able to bring your morals and your principles religiously formed to bear on your exercise of your office, whatever that office is, whether you're, again, back to truckers or politicians. That's just what the state, for our part, in our country, seems to assume in the First Amendment. So from the side of politics in our nation, the answer is yes, definitely, the church has the right and the ability to get involved in politics. This is why you have church bodies like the ELCA, very politically active, formally sets up lobbying groups in Congress. And there's no law against that. They're entitled to lobby as a church group for specific legislation. That is the church getting involved in politics, right? True of both institutions and individuals from the state side. But the bigger question, of course, is what do we say for our part as Christians? What do our scriptures and confessions say? Now, of course, just as a quick review, we talked about how the two must be kept separate and not confused. That is to say, the spiritual authority has its own um, purpose, goals, mission, and scope. And similarly, the secular authority has its own purpose, goals, mission, and scope. And you shouldn't, 
confuse the two, act like the spiritual state is there to do what the secular authorities are actually there to do, or vice versa. However, it is important to say that our confessions also say that the spiritual authority, when it exercises its authority on people, cultivates in them a new obedience. When you become a Christian, you start seeing the world a new way, right? You want to start following Christ and everything, as Christ says in Matthew 28, that he is commanded. And you'll want to do that in all of your life through all of things that you do. And so in that sense, the confessions, the scriptures, imply pretty much a very similar thing to what our Constitution in the U.S. implies. That, of course, you are going to want to exercise your religious faith in Christ, in everything you say, everything you do. That your moral convictions that have been formed by your faith in Jesus are going to be brought to bear in how you see politics and what are good political goals to achieve and what are bad political goals. It just goes without saying, practically. So the very clear answer to that first question, can the church be involved in politics, is a resounding yes. Of course the church can. It will be involved in politics, especially if we're talking about individual Christians. If you aren't, as a Christian, engaging with your Christian form morality in your way of dealing with the, the issues that are facing your country, Frankly, you're just not much of a Christian <laughs> because you obviously don't take the moral teachings, the social teachings, the con basic convictions of your faith very seriously if you don't think they apply to anything in the world around you, <laughs> which goes to something that one of you brought up last time. So, of course, a politician doesn't just leave their faith on Sunday morning when they go in to do their political duties if they're a Christian, or for that matter, a Muslim, or for that matter, a Jew or a Buddhist. They're going to act from within their deep religious convictions, assuming those religious convictions are actually deep. All right, I think none of us are going to argue too much about it. It just, it's, it's, interest, it's good to point out because sometimes we're uh, encouraged to think in a way that doesn't follow that very common sense position. Again, faith has nothing to do with politics keep it at home, separation of church and state. That kind of casting of church and state separation is nonsense. You just couldn't even do it if you wanted to. So that brings us to the second, the, the really nitty-gritty question. How is the church going to engage with the politics of the state? I'll just sell, um, I'm pulling what we're going to talk about here out of two main sources. One of them is one of our CTCR documents. If you ever want some light 80-page reading, um, there's this document called Render Unto Caesar, a Lutheran Perspective on Church and State that you can get off the internet from our LCMS website under the CTCR's subpage. Um, just go to Google, do a search CTCR Render Unto Caesar. I'm sure you'll find it. And you can read through it. This kind of, what we're saying here kind of follows that, which itself follows something written by a uh, Lutheran, not an LCMS Lutheran, but a Lutheran named Robert Bene, who wrote a book on uh, this topic. And the Render Unto Caesar largely follows that book on this point, where he's talking about how um, religion and politics kind of intertwine. One of the big things for, uh, that they spell out there is that, of course, every Christian has these core beliefs, things that are just central to their belief structure as Christians. Uh, some of these you could probably name without too much trouble. 
obviously, you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, right? If you're a Christian. That's just a core, fundamental belief to being a Christian. You believe, presumably, therefore, that you're a sinner, right? That you need salvation. And that you are, if you're a Lutheran Christian, one of your core beliefs is, you're corrupt to your core outside of Christ. That you will always be um, twisting God's good gifts to bad purposes. You will also, for that matter, believe that you have been created by God, that you are sustained by God, that you are your whole life is overseen by God, right? You'll believe all kinds of things about um, what your newfound faith in Christ leads you to want to live like. You'll believe that this world is temporary, that ultimately the real goal is not a perfect life here below, but an eternal life up with God, right? Core convictions. Almost every Christian could agree on them. Uh, Lutheran, different denominations will have different uh, core beliefs, but you get what I'm talking about here. Basically, the things that make a Christian a Christian. And everything we do is going to operate out from those core beliefs. The more central they are to your belief structure, obviously, the more it's going to impact things around you. The question is, how do you move from those core beliefs to what we might call um, specific political positions? And sometimes we convince ourselves that this is a pretty straightforward process. That um, I believe A... Therefore, my political position will be X. That is, um, I believe that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, I believe that um, we should follow this particular immigration reform policy. As though it's a straight line. And if you're not following that immigration reform policy, clearly you are denying your belief that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. I picked immigration reform because all of you probably would go, don't see how Jesus Christ being Lord necessarily means we should allow uh, so many people to cross the border every year or disallow so many people from crossing the border or give amnesty to this many individuals or not give amnesty to this individuals. You probably all feel like there's some wiggle room for Christians on those kinds of issues, right? You could, I, 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 let's just assume that uh, Bill here is a radical um, traditional conservative who says, uh, there's no one who should cross the border illegally, and anyone who gets across should be kicked right back across the border. Don't know if that's true or not. Let's just say it for the sake of the argument. And then Sue here is completely the opposite. No, we have a duty to take care of people, even though it's great to have uh, you know safe, secure borders. If they make it here, we can't kick them out. We've got to provide for them, treat them well, make sure they're well taken care of. R completely different positions, right? Could you still assume, I can probably take communion with you on, Bill can say to Sue, I can still take communion with you on Sunday because I can still believe you're not just a Christian but a faithful LCMS Lutheran. Could you see that as a possibility? Sure. And say, of course. Same way the other way. It doesn't follow, obviously, that because you disagree on this political position, you somehow disagree on your core beliefs. Why is that possible? Shouldn't the same core beliefs lead to the exact same position on all things? No. Partly for reasons we'll uh, talk about in a little bit uh, to do with the fact that you're in different circumstances, you still have different perspectives on things, and partly to do with things internal to the Christian religion itself. But uh, we'll come to that. The big point here is it's not as though there's an obvious straight line 
from your core beliefs to your specific political position. In most cases. Turns out your core beliefs might give rise to, or almost will certainly give rise, to what you might say are uh, very specific social principles. Think I, beliefs about what life in this world is supposed to be like, and what we Christians as Christians should normally try to do. We can even name a few of these big things. Uh, for instance, we, some of these core beliefs lead directly to the idea that, for one thing, there is this thing called human dignity. That every, Christ, every human individual, Christian or not, has implicit worth and value because they're a human being. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. God created them, sustained them, sent Christ to die for them. The necessary uh, implication of all of that is that therefore all of these people who God created, Christ redeemed and died for, and hopes to bring to faith and to eternal life, implies that they are worthwhile individuals. And therefore that every human individual is a worthy recipient of the protection and care of the government, right? By the way, if you're ever wondering about whether Christian beliefs should impact public policy, it's worth saying, and this is just a matter of historical fact, it's primarily Western political orders that have come to the belief that human individuals are worthwhile in the way that they do their politics. Things like human rights that apply to all people of all races, of all creeds, that is a uniquely Western creation. And it didn't come from cultures like Rome, ancient Rome or ancient Greeks, which, by the way, were rabidly opposed to those ideas. They assumed that government was there for the people who happened to be in power and certain groups of people who were helpful to the being the people in power. Everyone else was fair game to be molested or used as was best for the people who it was meant to protect. It was built on the assumption there are different classes of people, and some are just worth more than others. It was with Christianity basically taking over the West and becoming the official religion and infusing it down to the core of its morality that it started to develop these traditions of equal rights for all, regardless, precisely because all are equal in God's sight. China does not, to this day, have such a view. Most Eastern places, to this day, do not have such a view. India, still right, um, constantly uh, afflicted by its religious convictions of the caste system, where there are different degrees of humanity, and at the bottom are the people who are barely worth paying attention to. Christianity, this view, which is a direct corollary to our view of creation, and redemption has come from the Christian conviction of creation and redemption. This idea of the um, insurpassable human dignity of each individual. But that's one big social teaching that comes out of it. And it goes without saying, almost every aspect of our political life is determined a lot, to a great degree by this human dignity. Human finity. The idea that we are finite, and therefore, even though we are all equally worthy of certain protections and so on and so forth, nevertheless, we all have obligations towards certain people who are more within our sphere. We're limited. I can't be the, held responsible 
for people on the other side of the globe the same way I can be responsible for certain people that God has put into my immediate sphere of influence, my family, my uh, community. That's a very, I mean, it's not only Christians who have that perspective, obviously, but it is a Christian perspective that greatly has influenced and continues to influence and will continue to influence our both Christian engagement with politics and politics in general, because most of our politics, like I said, derives from Christian beliefs these days. Even though we don't acknowledge it anymore or aren't aware of it anymore, most of these things came from that initially. I'm not going to go through all of these different things that there could be. It's just to give you an idea that, uh, well, I'll give one other thing that's very important. Sinfulness and redemption. The fact that uh, Christianity views all people as somehow corrupt to some degree. Some Christians, like Lutherans and Calvinists, for instance, view that as a very deep-seated, very far-reaching corruption. Some Christians less so, but all of them admit that, uh, sinful, that humanity is sinful, broken, corrupt, bent in on itself, bent away from the permanent good. And on, so on the one hand, that also the people who inhabit the government will be liable to those same problems, and that therefore <laughs> that gov the gov people in government need to have certain limits and restraints put on their power precisely because otherwise they will be prone to absolute corruption, and all kinds of horrible things. Checks and balances on government, again, comes as a to the idea of human sinfulness, and also as a corollary to the idea of human redemption. The idea, the Christian belief that only Christ can ultimately give us redemption and freedom from sin, injustice, and so forth in a life that is to come, implies that the government is not able to ever do those things. And therefore, the government is only ever capable of giving limited steps toward a relatively less unjust world. It will never bring us the utopian perfect order, and to try to do so will ultimately be something that is bad. So there are some big social teachings. We could name all kinds of other ones, um, specific things like uh, ideas about who is worth human dignity and so on and so forth. But the point is, our core beliefs move out into specific, relatively stable social ideas about what is good and proper in our uh, way of dealing with other people and uh, how we should treat other people. And those, from there, we move out to what you might say are particular historical circumstances place we live, the people we're actually encountering, and the problems that arise in those particular cases. Those kind, now, these, this obviously never changes. Core beliefs should and ought to remain always the same throughout all generations, all times, and all places, right? That's what the whole idea of Christianity. This is the truth that God has revealed, therefore that will always be the case. Social teachings, very stable things. You don't get different principles all of a sudden out of those core beliefs one day. Historical circumstance, that changes all the time. For every single person, it's somewhat different. And from generation to generation, it's entirely different. From different country to different country, it is entirely different. What may be a good idea of an application of a social teaching here in America may be a horrible idea in, say, Russia or China, or Australia. Because the people live in very different circumstances, and there are very different things going on 
in their society, in their um, relations with other nations, and just all kinds of things that they're facing. Which is, to, And this is where it starts to get really muddy. You can't just jump from core belief to a specific political position, largely because, on the one hand, you have to filter those core beliefs through the social teachings, and then those have to get filtered through all of these historical differences that are going on. And the recognition that there's so many different things going on at any given time that even if we all had the exact same view about what, we sh what our social beliefs should be about the state of human life and how we should react towards human life, the people that we encounter themselves are going to be in such radically different positions that there's no obvious way to deal with them that's always and only going to be right. I'll give you a few examples that will really help draw this out. My point is here, the overarching point I'm trying to make here, and this will be good to start with before we dive into a specific examples, is the movement from the core beliefs to the specific political positions we might take is a very jagged line. It doesn't just move straightforwardly from belief A to position X. There are instances where it's a relatively straight line. But by and large, most of them just all over the map trying to get to a very specific thing. Let's start with some fairly relatively straight line kinds of things. Uh, just two off the, heck, we could even pick three off the top of the head. One that's a fairly straight, for, straight line, not completely straight, but a pretty straight line from core belief to a specific political position is the issue of abortion. Because... Fundamental core belief of Christianity is that every human life is created by God. With Christ went to the cross for every single human life. Now, even if you uh, want to push a strong contention that there's no specific statement in the Bible about when a human life begins, which is a tenuous argument at best, you still have to deal with the fact that what you're dealing with in the human womb is at the very least a nascent human life. It will result in a life just like yours or mine. And it's fairly shaky grounds to say that what is in the womb is somehow more nascent and not a full life. It's a shaky argument at best to say that it isn't a human life. But you cannot contend that it is already not life in its earliest forms. So because of that, it seems like there's a pretty straightforward statement from God created this person, God redeemed this person, God desires eternal fellowship with that person who's in the womb, to the assertion that therefore what is in the womb is uh, a recipient of all the human dignity in the social teaching realm here as anyone else, and therefore should be subject to the, all the protections necessary for a person in that phase of life. So regardless of historical circumstance, that kind of thing obtains. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. Um, every Christian should believe that you can't just pick up a rock and knock somebody out just because you feel like it, right? No matter where you live, under what conditions, that social teaching is pretty applicable to every historical circumstance. Same kind of thing with abortion. It's a pretty straightforward thing that cuts through historical contingencies to a very large degree. Now, not entirely. After all, you might say, well, what about this instance where um, the mother we know giving birth is going to kill the mother? We just know it with 100% medical certainty. Granted, God could do something miraculous, 
But by everything that we know and can anticipate, the mother will die. Now you're in a different, now you have a historical circumstance which does slightly muddy the water there here. Yes, abortion is wrong, but now you're weighing which two, you have two lives on the line. And Christians can, in good conscience, have a different perspective on what the political position should be. A Christian could take the position. There's a difference between intentionally killing the uh, unborn baby and not intentionally killing the mother. The mother is going to die, but that's natural. Abortion will actively, deliberately kill the child. Therefore, it's better to let the mother die and raise and let the child live. Some Christians could take that perspective. Alternatively, a Christian could, in good conscience, take the perspective, the mother has obligations to all these other children, and the husband, granted, it's a horrible thing, but the mother's life needs to be prioritized here. Um, It's just to say, even with a fairly straight line like abortion, you can envision differences in the specific political position arising from certain circumstances, right? Now, it's a fairly narrow range. I mean, we're talking about that very specific case where the life of either the mother or both mother and child are in jeopardy. <laughs> That's a very different thing than saying where the you know, general well-being of the mother is in, gener- is in jeopardy. That's a very different perspective, which brought the range to a whole range of things, which simply most the Christian core belief says, I don't care if it means a lot of suffering for the mother. Life is more important than the uh, alleviation of suffering. Therefore, we have to have policies that restrict abortion, except in very narrow cases, possibly. That's a fairly straightforward kind of instance. Does that make sense, what I'm talking about here? Do you see how I'm also talking about, even though it's fairly straightforward, it's still not 100% straight line. Because it's human dignity, abortion is always wrong. There are a couple of specific kinds of cases where you can even have differing positions. We could go the same for, well, not the same. We could talk about issues like homosexual marriage. For a Christian, core belief is that God is the institutor of marriage, right? Uh, He designed it, one man, one woman. Very straightforward kind of thing. Therefore, means that across all times and places, policies that try to uh, denigrate marriage as between a man and a woman are Fairly straightforwardly wrong. I, it's, I can't come up very easily with any uh, limitations on that the way I could with abortion. <laughs> um, but my point is, there are issues where the line is straight, right? Fairly straight. On the other hand, and I'll go through quickly with these because I want to make sure we have uh, a list two where it's less straightforward. Again, core belief. People created in the image of God... Um, even though they're fallen, they retain that dignity and as the created and redeemed and sustained by him. Therefore, we should try to protect and value all human life and do what we can to preserve and um, enrich that human life, right? Seventh commandments even we could go to where it says, um, do not steal. Do you remember the explanation? We should fear and love God so that we do not seek to get our uh, neighbor's money, possessions, so on and so forth. But then the last part, but help him improve his possessions and income. That's basic core Christian belief. Social teaching, that it 
obviously goes out to, again, this human dignity, this desire to enrich the welfare, physical and otherwise, of the people around us, gets to a whole question of what we might call the social safety net. It would seem, for many Christians, that there's a very straight line here. You go from core belief to, we don't let anyone live in poverty. And if they, we, we always give them access to full health care. For a lot of Christians, that's what it seems like. The obvious straight line is, they have human dignity, their life is worthwhile, therefore we move straight and directly to a maximal safety net. What's the problem with making that line really, really straight? Because, in theory, it's true, as Christians, we should want to protect people from falling into debilitating poverty, starvation, lack of health care, all kinds of things, right? After all, what kind of Christian says, I don't care you got diabetes, that's your problem, Irma. <laughs> Not a very Christian thing to say. <laughs> I don't care who we are. But, why wouldn't it be a straight line, necessarily? Or even that straight, even... A somewhat wavy line. We can't uh, define exactly what's going to be poverty, or is this person put themselves in poverty because they that's just what they want to do, or do they have other issues that's created that? You know, you just can't. It's not black and white. You can't define that. Okay. There's all kinds of different issues that come up very quickly. Um, it's sort of like. Uh, homeless people or the tent, tent cities or whatever, you know, <clears throat> so, cities are trying to get, you know, alleviate this problem and make a better living place for them, and some just don't want to. There's all kinds of what we might call prudential considerations. That is to say, that says consequences. I'm not a very good handwriter. I have the best of times. When I'm writing at an angle, it's even worse. <laughs> Um, there's all kinds of different things you might think. Let's just take the issue of alleviating poverty. Every Christian should believe that uh, it's a bad thing for people to live in radical poverty where they can't support themselves or their families. That's a bad situation that we should want to have ended, right? Um, again, human dignity, want to help, Seventh Commandment even positively charges that kind of thing. But um, you get to questions about, first of all, what are the causes of the poverty? Was this kind of, um, a, and I'm not saying if somebody has self-imposed it, therefore they deserve it, therefore let them do it. But there is a very real question. Are a lot of the reasons these people are impoverished because of a string of life choices that alleviating their poverty in any direct sense would actually exacerbate their problems? For instance, Am I a hopeless drug addict who spends everything I get on these drugs? Well, granted, you want to lift them out of poverty, and you'd like to lift them out of their addiction. But if you do it in, in reckless ways, you might simply exacerbate their opportunities for addiction and all kinds of other destructive behavior. There's a lot of things that go into play when you start thinking about that. Then there's also the other question about uh, level of poverty. How, do, how are we going to define what counts as poverty here? Because what we count as poverty was frankly swimming in wealth not 300 years ago. <laughs> swimming in wealth not 300 years ago. So how high are you going to say this is the standard of living, living a Christian can minimally tolerate other people living in? 
That is not a straightforward answer, especially when you take in the other fact that we live as finite people in a finite world. Human finitude there again. You have to deal with the fact that there are only so many resources. And so you have to deal with how do you best use those resources to, to achieve all the goals you think are worth achieving. So it very quickly becomes a very muddy and jagged line from the general goal of we want to alleviate po poverty and human suffering and enrich the general welfare, a very basic Christian uh, position, but with room for a huge range of possible political ideas about how best to do that. We haven't even talked about possible consequences that come out of your policy or your political position. Things that you may not have even thought about, things that you probably could have reasonably detected would have happened. Well, now it's going to get stolen by people who don't actually need it, who are gaming the system. There are people like that. After all, we believe in human sinfulness. Now, again, I'm not, saying, I'm not trying to push one policy or another, and I'm not trying to get into the idea that everybody's just trying to game the system. People who are in poverty, it's their own fault. That is not what I'm trying to say. I'm simply saying, for a Christian operating from the shared set of core beliefs, and even from a shared set of social teachings, you can come to some very different views on those kinds of things. And there's no straightforward way of looking at somebody who disagrees with you and saying, that is a very unchristian position to take. Maybe they're just approaching it from a very different set of assumptions than you are. Maybe they aren't thinking about things that you're thinking about. Maybe you're not thinking about things that they're thinking about. Or maybe you're just giving different weight to different things. But the point is, not an easy line to draw. Which should, by the way, lead us to uh, a certain kind of sense of um, civic engagement as Christians that allows us to tolerate different political opinions and even approach people with a certain benefit of the doubt. Enga so if I come across, um, let's say I'm a rabid Democrat and I come across a rabid Republican. If I'm a genuinely Christian person and we recognize a couple of issues that we very heavily politically disagree on, I can recognize and even approach that person as though they're wrong, they're doing silly things, that they're just not seeing it properly. But I can't immediately to jump to not a very Christian person, is he, <laughs> for having that position. What I will do is charitably assume that they're operating in good faith, that is to say, with an actually coherent and consistent application of their core beliefs, the same as me, and somehow manage to arrive at these very different positions, which should even allow me a willingness and a desire to talk about that with them why they believe as they do and why I believe as I do. Because if I truly believe that they can, if they're, that they're not just simply stupid or simply evil, which is a sad um, way that a lot of people just approach the other side politically. Well, the problem is they're stupid or they're evil. Therefore, I can write them off and not pay attention to them. They just need to get in line with me. If I can assume that that person is, in fact, an earnest Christian who believes more or less the same things that I do about God, and I, am a, I can assume that 
Therefore, maybe they even have consistent, coherent, and compelling reasons for their position that I have not considered, and therefore want to know how they get to where they're getting, and similarly share the same about my position with them. Political dialogue should actually be an outgrowth of the fact that we believe we are Christians. Now, of course, you can't assume that with a non-Christian necessarily, but it doesn't mean you can treat them any more haughtily or um, mean-spiritedly. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? That's not really relevant to this per se. It's more in a sidebar to say, um, let's get past this idea that everybody who disagrees with me is stupid or evil and start assuming, especially if they're Christian, that maybe they're actually smart enough to have a compelling, coherent consistent position, and that therefore it is not simply evil, necessarily, and therefore I can talk to them and show them if in fact it isn't consistent, if it isn't coherent, if it isn't actually lining up with their core beliefs, and vice versa. Um, now that being said, um, that gives you the idea that there is no straightforward um, we're Christian, therefore this should be our political position in most cases, right? Which, by the way, will be a nice segue into our final portion here um, that we're about to get into. That this is also why church bodies, either as congregation, individual congregations or broader denominations, should be very, 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 very careful and frugal with their desire to get directly involved in politics. Precisely because um, we can recognize that there's a variety of possible Christian or positions that Christians can take on the vast majority of political issues. Not on all of them, like we said. There's several, probably even a fairly good number that all Christians should presumably be able to get behind. But because there's so many out there that Christians could, in good conscience and good faith, hold to on a vast range, church bodies, which are made up of a variety of individual Christians, no doubt all holding the same core beliefs, in theory, um, nevertheless, they shouldn't presume to speak for all of their members as though this is the Response. This is the responsible political position for their for all Christians in their midst to take. Does that make sense? So, just to give you an example, if the LCMS went to the government and said, "As the LCMS, we are officially um, dispensing this teaching and lobbying you to um, take this particular position on immigration reform," that would give the impression that all LCMS Lutherans have to, if they're faithful LCMS Lutherans, line up behind that political position, right? And that would not be very fair <laughs> for several reasons. One, because that almost certainly is not the only legitimate position for an LCMS Lutheran to take. And therefore, what you're going to do is divide your own church body on things that they could, in principle, disagree about and remain members of the same church body. It's a bad idea. Now, of course, there are issues, again, that no doubt church bodies could have the universal or should have the universal acclaim of their church body for. Issues like 
seeking to restrict abortion and gay marriage. Those are presumably, if you're an LCMS Lutheran, you would get behind those kinds of things for most purposes, right? But those are few and far between. Which brings us to this next question. How, so how then should um, the church, when it moves to this specific political position or uh, moving um, the church to engage in the actual politics, given that it's thorny and jagged, how should it happen? Um, again, going with that same TCC, CTCR document and Robert Benning, they have some helpful ideas about the, way, the different ways that churches and Christians might engage. Churches, I should say, specifically as um, groups of Christians, church bodies, congregations. First of all, there's indirect and unintentional influence. This is the idea that the church body doesn't try at all in any sense to directly engage with the politics of the culture or even uh, have in its back of its mind, this is what we're going to try to do. This is more like the pastor on Sunday gets up and preaches what the Bible says. And then as the, M, the people in the congregation are formed by what the Bible says, they'll necessarily go out and start engaging in their political life as well, as though these things are true. Excuse me. So it is an influence on the political order, but it's indirect in the sense that the church is not directly going to the powers that be and saying, this is what needs to happen. And it's unintentional in the sense that the church isn't trying to get a particular political outcome. It's simply teaching the faith, and the individuals who are formed in that faith will, of course, go out in their vocations and live accordingly and start engaging the politic, political order according to their convictions. That is something that every church does do simply by virtue of actually preaching the truth. And that is the most common um, way that a church should do, as a church body, do its politics. That is to say, not worry about doing politics. Preach the truth. You guys, in your daily lives, you'll be the ones to deal with it. And you know what? You'll deal with it as though you believe what you say you believe. And that's good enough for the church as a whole in most cases. Make sense? Um, then there's another level. Intentional and indirect. So this would be a case where a congregation or a church body um, very much does want to start forming people towards a certain kind of way of viewing particular political issues but does not necessarily go to the powers that be. Um, for instance, let's say um, we start putting out information to you about what's going on in Congress on a specific issue and giving you information that says, this would be bad for us because of A, B, and C. Therefore, maybe you should go out and do something about this. Petition your congressman, so on and so forth. Um, most churches do this from time to time. Our own church body does it, um, probably more so recently than they have in the past. For instance, I get uh, emails probably once a month from the Central Illinois District um, saying, um, the Illinois State Legislature is about to have this vote on this issue. Petition your congressman. 
to stop them from doing it because this will be bad for our faith and our exercise of religion for this reason, this reason, this reason. For instance, uh, things on abortion, education reform, so on and so forth. I get emails like that all the time. Uh, the very fact that I just presented to you on this idea of about abortion and gay marriage is a very specific kind of instance. I was very directly talking to you about a political issue and presenting it in a way which I hoped would form a very specific political view in your mind, that abortion is almost always bad to do and ought to be opposed. It's not that it's necessarily wrong, but you don't want to get to it too heavily. Because on the one hand, the higher you move up this pyramid, by the way, from indirect and unintentional to what we'll talk about direct and intentional, um, the more likely, first of all, you are to do what we talked about before, create division in your own church. It's easy to keep unity when you're, all you're doing is preaching the word of God and letting it hit people where they're at, right? And then they'll go out and act as Christians in the world. You're probably not going to start too many political fights in your congregation by doing that. Um, intentional and indirect, you start to raise that bar by possibly treading into waters where there are a variety of different possible positions on a thing and starting to uh, create animosity where there is no real reason for animosity or alienating people who view it differently when they still have a legitimate view. Make sense? So churches, for that reason, should be uh, on the up, should be hesitant about moving too far up past this initial indirect, unintentional way of doing things. But for another reason is because the more you do it, you might say the more you lose your authority on the issue. Um, if you're constantly, constantly, constantly appealing to people to take certain stands on political issues, it's hard for them to start to view you as anything other than a political partisan kind of organization. And the more you do it, not only are you going to cause divisions, but the more they're just going to say, write you off what you say because you say it so often. Um, so you don't, on the one hand, you diminish your authority the more often you do this, and you increase the likelihood of division. Bad to do. Um, the next one is uh, intentional and direct influence. This is where you actually start um, directly petitioning the government to do certain things. Lobbying is a very good instance of this. Um, by the way, um, the LCMS, for a very long time, had the position that uh, lobbying is a bad idea for the church to do. Uh, in fact, in the documents I mentioned, Render Unto Caesar, it specifically and explicitly says there are a lot of churches out there that are lobbying. We shouldn't do that. It's a bad idea. Nowadays, we actually have this uh, institute that's... Uh, under, from, that uh, was formed under our president's authority that does some lobbying. Change in perspective. Personally, one I don't agree with, but uh, it is what it is. It's to say, but that's what we're talking about when we're talking about indirect and di or direct and intentional influence. We're going directly to the powers that be and very intentionally trying to influence their policy decisions. Again, starts to get into very dangerous waters for your integrity as the church. 
sometimes it needs to be done. Not saying the church should never and can never do this. Certainly, um, there are times where it would no doubt be a prudent thing to do, and the church would actually be doing an unfaithful thing by not trying to do this. Uh, Take up one instance. Uh, Let's go back to Nazi Germany. (laughs) Hitler is uh, rounding up and executing Jews in horrifically unthought of numbers. Probably a good time for the church, as the church, to say to Hitler, even though it's going to get them persecuted, Hitler, this is wrong. (laughs) Stop it. Direct and intentional influence, heavily justified in those kings, because what the government is doing in those cases is so directly and so malignantly opposed to all good human order and all religious faith. Make sense? The last one is the same kind of thing, only instead of just influencing, you're becoming activist now. You're actually doing things to effect the change. Um, Forming uh, little voting blocks. uh, Forming... uh, community action teams, and so on. By the way, um, just to take a kind of comparison, the ELCA has become famous for uh, trading very heavily in these top two tiers. They are constantly issuing social statements, constantly lobbying for things to happen, constantly getting involved in activist kinds of activities. Traditionally, the LCMS would always limit itself to these bottom two, and especially the bottom one. Um... That's starting to change, possibly not for the better, by us moving up towards that. But it is just to give you an idea of that's a very big difference between the two church bodies. ELCA is very politically active, very heavily on the progressive side of things. Um, Well, the LCMS has always assumed that the smarter thing to do, the more faithful thing to do, is to stick with preaching the word and let you guys live out your vocation as the word hits you and only occasionally moving into informing you on, hey, you might want to think about doing it this way for these reasons. Any questions about any of that? What I hope I've left you with is uh, a sense that this is much messier than you might have thought before. Um, I don't want you to leave here thinking with clarity, oh, This is the Christian position on any particular given topic. If you had that view before, I hope I disrupted it, and uh, that you've come to a little more to the idea that, um, yes, we should be involved as Christians in the political order. For one thing, because we're members of the political order as citizens of the nation. Secondly, because we're Christians and we have beliefs that have real-world consequences. Um, but also that you would come to believe that it is not an easy, straightforward thing to move from this is my belief, this is therefore the only correct political response to this thing going on in the world. It's a messy world we live in. And uh, Christianity gives us huge amounts of guidance. I don't want to leave you with the idea of, well, therefore Christians can do whatever in the political realm. I want you to leave you with the idea that there is clear guidance from our core beliefs, but the application of that guidance is not always a straightforward affair. It is a necessary thing, but it's not straightforward. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.